about to begin a, a four-week series on the Gospels, but uh, before we do that, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that yet again you have called us into uh, community today to study from your word, to hear from your word, to hear it proclaimed and preached later on in worship, and we just ask that you bless all that we do here at this place to fill us with your word so that we might delight in who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I always like to um, mention right off the bat the material I'll be heavily leaning on, and I'll be leaning on a a professor of mine, uh, Jonathan Pennington. Uh, He actually teaches at Southern Seminary. Uh, He's a a Baptist, which I riled him a little bit about, but uh, I love him nonetheless, and... uh, he is um, writing currently the pillar commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. After that, he has a commentary lined up for Luke that he's going to be writing for, I want to say it's like the IVP and then one on John. He is uh, a, one of the great scholars um, uh, in America right now on, the, uh, on really the Gospels. And so a lot of his material today, if you, you end up liking it, you want to learn more, he has quite a few books that you can check out and I can kind of steer you to a lot of it as well. Um, for today, we're also going to have kind of more of a broad overview. The main part of the class is going to be a broad overview of the Gospels. Also, kind of present you with a way to look at the Gospels as you read them. Um, we're only going to probably get into four chapters of Matthew if we're lucky. Um, but the remainder of the class will be going through the chapters of the books, uh, going into details that um, maybe we miss at first uh, reading and first glance as we walk through the material. So I guess the first question I'll ask is, how many Gospels are there? So are there four? Um, uh, the early church sometimes actually would say there were five Gospels. Sometimes there are people in the early church who argue, of course, there's only one Gospel. Um, obviously, the scriptural tradition says four we also know from the Gospels, though, and from writings that have been collected, that we have people that attempted to write Gospels that weren't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so, uh, in one sense, there, um, there are a lot of Gospels. And does anybody want to take a guess at what the early church would call the fifth Gospel? Let's see if anybody makes the Dan Brown error. No, not Thomas. It wasn't Thomas. The, the early church would often call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Because after chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, until you get to the point of chapter 66, it's really messianic. It's really gospel heavy. It's, it talks about um, Christ and the cross. Actually, uh, if you want to find the most explicit use of the idea of gospel, In the Old Testament, you would turn to Isaiah 61, verse 1, um, and it talks about going, there's going to be this messianic figure who will go and proclaim the good news. Um, Luke, actually, in his gospel, um, how, how Isaiah uses it is sort of, so the word gospel is used both as kind of a noun and a verb, and so, um, Luke will use it as a verb, mainly. 
And it'll be when it's used as a verb, it's kind of like gospelize. I'm going to go gospelize these people. Um, the only other two times in Scripture where this good news word is used in the Old Testament, that is, uh, is in the book of Samuel when a messenger is reporting that uh, there was success on a battlefield. They would say they would come to get the good news. But uh, Isaiah uses it in 61.1 to talk about the spreading of the gospel to come from this messianic prophecy. Uh, Luke will usually use it more as a noun, but Luke does have, I mean, uh, Matthew will use it more as a noun. Does sometimes so to gospelize is sort of to provide it widespread to, um, and it's an act of doing so. So uh, if you ever <clears throat> encounter somebody, uh, obviously it was all the rage back around the, the millennium to talk about maybe there were more gospels. Um, the early church did sometimes talk about five gospels, but Isaiah was the other one that they talked about, but. Ultimately, for purposes of this course, we're going to focus on four, the four of the New Testament. And so how should we understand these Gospels? Um, There are really two ways to read the Gospels, um, especially the synoptics. We can read them vertically, or we can kind of read them horizontally. Um, And horizontally is sort of picture, let's picture all four of them together and You kind of read them sideways, and you kind of try to pick from all of them this united picture that kind of becomes the the central picture of Christ. Um, Pennington's argument, and I agree with it, is that this is a problem. You don't want to do this. Uh, This has been all the rage the last hundred years or so to, to argue that you should kind of take what all these guys write about Jesus and where they overlap and, and kind of make us unified storytelling. Pennington's argument is that we should appreciate that these are vertical biographies, that these are Greek biographies, that we can even look at biography as the main type of writing style that um, the early church was entering into. And... Uh, when do these Gospels get written, when these Gospel writers write? Do they write it at the very beginning of their lives? No, they write it towards the end of their lives. And so, what have they been doing for 20, 30 years before that point? They've been preaching the Gospel. And so these are sort of a magnum opus of how they want to preach Christ and, and talk about the life of Christ and the biography of Christ. And so when we start trying to, you know, when we read Matthew and quickly want to also read Mark's account of the same story and then read Luke's account of the same story, we're not letting Mark stand as a biographer. Picture us in a, in a room where there's painting going on and maybe in the center of the room we have, you know, that classic couple vases with pieces of fruit and I'm standing over here and I'm painting it. But somebody, Paul's painting it from that perspective. Walt's painting it from this perspective. Uh, We have all these different angles. And so allow the person to write their biography on their own uh, is is really the way to do that. And 
And this is something the majority of the reformers will get wrong. Um, Calvin gets this wrong. If you read Calvin's commentaries, he tries to write a commentary with the synoptics kind of blended. Uh, Luther does this incorrectly as well. Though Martin Bietzer, who was Calvin's mentor, uh, he has a view much like Pennington. Uh, write, read them on their own. Let them stand distinct. Isn't that essentially what we do in the, the systematic theology? Though, where, I'm, I'm not yeah. against it, but I can, I can yeah. see why Calvin may have wanted to systematize what he saw. Yeah, and so I guess maybe some of my work will be Matthew is going to express his points differently or trying to convey his message differently than Luke will and Mark will. And so, yes, we'll, we want to systematize theology ultimately, and that's systematics. But when it comes to a running commentary on a situation, uh, we often will miss some of the intent, authorial intent if we immediately start trying to cross-list it and, uh, and, and, and look elsewhere. And that, and that, for instance, where we start in Matthew, it's going to be very tempting to do that because Matthew is the most brief. If you're ever going, okay, I need a story in the synoptics, I want to read which account to give. If you're looking for the most brief account, always go to Matthew. Matthew is a man of brevity. Mark and Luke, well, Mark doesn't have a lot of content. Well, he's, when he speaks about it, he usually provides more detail, and then Luke does as well. So they all kind of have their different uh, themes. And we'll get into that um, today for Matthew, and future weeks we'll also look at um, all of them. And when it comes to uh, these Greek biographies, um, I included a, a chart that has some of uh, their overlap, these stories overlap, but again, they're, they're going to provide different details um, and uh, let them do so. Um, let them essentially, going back to that artistic, let them draw their picture of Christ and let that first stand. And then, yes, later on we can kind of work with it. Um, and again, going into these biographies, a little more. Biographies were all the rage of this world. And so you would take a biography and you'd want to live as that person did. And so uh, mainly this happened with philosophers. So you would read a biography on Socrates. You would read a biography on um, Plato, on Aristotle, or whatever philosopher you would like. And so the gospel writers and then that would provide you kind of the lens. Reading their narrative would provide you the lens for how you are to live. And so uh, the Gospels intentionally are frame themselves exactly like these Greek bioi that we see throughout the tradition. Um, and philosophers were the rock stars of their day. And so even in the writing of their Gospels, there is this, we don't think of this post-Enlightenment, post-Reformation, post really ancient Greek world, but many, much of it is trying to, the early writer's intent is to frame Jesus as the philosopher of all philosophers, as the premium philosopher. Um, and he sees the world in a new way and, a, and, a new, and it calls us to live it out in a new way, live life in a new way. And so those themes will be picked up. Um, so the Gospels aren't written in the sense of Paul's letter to Galatia. 
Paul's letter to Galatia is written to a specific audience, a specific place, a specific people. Um, and yet, it has broader application for us all. It was sort of, dis- it has biblical discovery. The gospel writers, while we often say, oh, Matthew was the gospel that was written to the Jews. We say, Luke was, you know, John was to the Gentiles. And we kind of overemphasize, uh, Pennington would argue, uh, we overemphasize some of that. The Roman world at this time extended from Britain to India. Um, how they write this is seems intentional to try to go throughout the Pax Romana, the, throughout the Roman world, to extend to all audiences. And so don't uh, try to overly read into the idea of Matthew is Jewish, uh, John is for Gentiles, and I'm just as guilty as of making those assumptions. While Paul might have written letters, they, they know intentionally, again, they've been in ministry 20, 30 years. They know they've been in their ministry going throughout the known world. And so when they're compiling these, they are compiling them with a broader audience in mind. Um, the Gospels were written to be widely distributed um, and uh, for all situations. These four biographies will take up the greatest chunk of the New Testament. And in the first century, uh, they are what people most want to read. We as uh, products of the Reformation usually find ourselves in Paul a lot. Um, For them, the Greek biographies were the creme de la creme of Scripture. And, um, And the difference also between like a Paul and the Gospels is in one sense, Paul's theology. So when we read like a Romans, it's in one sense a commentary on what happens in the Gospels. And so Paul is obviously an inscripturated commentary worked out through the Holy Spirit, but it's a commentary, whereas the Gospels themselves are, um, they are the, kind of the meaty issue. The, the, the writings of like a Paul, the writings, the epistles of John and, and Peter, those writings are, are the side dish to the main event, in one sense, of the early New Testament, which is the Gospel. Uh, they, are, they reflect the truth that is found within the Gospels. So, <clears throat> all right. Now I kind of want to go into this broader cultural depth of the Gospels themselves that I just kind of talked about. And so I, I need a volunteer, and I promise it won't be that difficult of a challenge, but I do need a volunteer to just summarize a quick story. I'm going to give it to Josh then. Josh, can you summarize for us the story of the prodigal son? Uh, his son is uh, his part of the inheritance, and he is his father and goes and wastes it, and then realizes that he's a slave in his father's house, got it better than what he does, and he goes after his father and welcomes him back. Yeah, and just so you know, that would be the telling of a, like, they did this survey, and there's this book on this matter, for over 90% of, like, seminary students in the United States, and that's exactly how they would summarize it, and I would summarize it. Um, But then they went to Russia, and they went post-Cold War, and they found that the Russians, who were studying scripture, always focus on the famine. 
They didn't care that he squandered the father's estate. The famine that forced him back into the father's land uh, because they had found that socialism doesn't work, uh, which <clears throat> hopefully some generations could also figure that out too. Um, they had found out socialism didn't work. And so for them, it wasn't so much the wasting away of the fathers. They're, they didn't grow up in a capitalist world. They grew up in a world where they worried where they would eat the next day. And so they see the famine as driving the kid back to the father. Um, both are true, but not one is. Both are have are in the account, but there's these cultural differences that happen as we read the Gospels. Um, so we kind of read them. We read the Gospels through a lens as Western minds, usually through a guilt righteousness lens. So guilt and righteousness. I'll just write right. Um, righteousness lens. And that's primarily Western culture that we do that. But there are three more that are within the gospel. <sighs> For mostly Asian cultures, we have the next one. Do you know, want to take maybe a guess of what might be a, th- a heavy theme that's picked up? Largely in uh, Asian cultures and such. Shame, honor. Shame, honor. That's another lens. It's within the gospel account. And different stories will be better understood with different lenses. Um, Often in Muslim cultures... Uh, for instance, this was uh, there's a book written. Uh, I have it written down here by Nabil Jabur, and he, he went to. He was talking about how Westerners would come out to Muslim nations with this idea of guilt righteousness, and they were not effective at all. Um, but when they went to the defilement, defiled, clean motif, all of a sudden. That would speak to people who, through shame in their culture, or had been considered unclean in their culture. Clean, unclean motif. And then if we think of cultures like Northern Korea, um, or very oppressive, tyrannical regimes, fear power. Uh, Communist countries, often the fear power motif. The fact that, yes, we are in fear, but Christ has all power. Yet, the fact that we are defiled, but Christ sets us clean. The fact that we bear shame, but in Christ we receive honor. The fact that we are guilty, but we are made right with God. These are kind of the three main threads and lenses uh, theologians have picked up uh, that are in, um, in the Gospels. And so while mainly our American diet of Gospel reading tries to put everything kind of in a heavily Pauline guilt-righteousness lens. Um, there are uh, shame and honor. Uh, the, the Bible traffics in all these. So, for instance, somebody who uh, may have joined, let's say, the sex trade to uh, uh, deal with uh, a, an addiction. Um, these, these themes really would speak more to that individual or um, largely uh, than maybe guilt righteousness. Ultimately, they all work and they all unite to kind of uh, 
create the overall gospel emphasis, but uh, these are kind of the four threads that are to help articulate the fullness of the gospel. And so the gospel traffics in all these paradigms and has used all these themes in church history. And so when we look at the Reformation, obviously the guilt-righteousness theme in the 1500s really took off. But mainly in the early church, for instance, when the Roman power, when saying Jesus is Lord puts you in direct opposition to saying, you know, Caesar is Lord, which you were called to do. Uh, Fear and power was a huge one for them, for the early church. That was the theme that, if you read a lot of their theologians during that time, uh, they had uh, um, the, uh, yeah, and so it it works out that way in history. And so, there we go. Now, when it comes to the four Gospels, there are a couple common points of agreement. All of them talk about the preaching of John the Baptist, they talk, mention the baptism of Jesus. They talk about the Galilean ministry of Jesus, how he did healing in Galilee and that area, and also the Judean ministry, which ultimately uh, hits its apex with a division between Jesus and a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Then the crucifixion, of course, and the resurrection appearances. And so... That gives you kind of a broad overview, and let's begin with Matthew. What time am I at? Uh, Five till? Okay. So let's get to Matthew. While Mark was written first, Matthew is the first book that we have in the New Testament, and there was intentionality in putting Matthew first. First, um, we'll see one when we get into the text a little bit more, but um, which book in the Old Testament has the most genealogies? Anyone want to take a stab at it? What? Genesis? Is it Chronicles? Wouldn't it be Chronicles if you first and second? It might be Genesis, but actually Matthew will reference Genesis. So Chronicles has a lot of genealogies. Genesis uh, is possible as, as also an answer. Um, and if we're looking at the Jewish scriptures, if we were going to, we were picking up a Jewish Bible, the last book of their scripture would be Chronicles. We don't have that as our last book, and that's because we followed uh, the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We have the same books as the Jewish Old Testament does today if we were to go visit a synagogue. However, our order is different. And so Chronicles would be the last book. And Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. Actually, essentially ends on a comma. It is awaiting, really, a genealogy. Um, Whereas we think of the scriptures we have, all 66 books, Revelation kind of ends with like an emphatic... I'm done. Don't add to the book. And I don't think John's just talking about the book of Revelation. I think John is has a picture of the entire canon. It's over. It's finished. Don't add to it. Um, Paul, of course, in Galatians one warns don't don't add to this test, this apostolic testimony as well. Um, The Hebrew scriptures ends on a comma. It's awaiting a genealogy. 
And so Matthew serves as that genealogy. Also, when it comes to the gospel writers, how many people were first-hand disciples of the gospel writers? Two, yes. Two, and they're the end caps. Matthew and John. Two are in the middle. Mark and Luke, they're secondary. Now, early church tradition attributes Luke to Paul. I also think that most certainly Luke interviews Mary. Um, Mark is attributed to Peter. But these are the secondary sources. They're in the middle. The, the disciples, the first-hand account disciples, not that these aren't first-hand accounts, but the named first-hand accounts, the church decides to put them on either end. But Matthew begins, of course, with its genealogy. And so it, it also links really well with the, with the Jewish canon in that regard. So Matthew, as I said earlier, he's the most brief of all the gospel writers. If we're looking for a part of Scripture to be told with brevity, we want to go to Matthew. Matthew also does a lot of repetition. Things like such as, blessed are you, or woe to you. By their fruits you will know them. He repeats these lines. And these were powerful devices for memorization. Because we have to remember, it takes about 1,500 years before people have these Bibles um, in print at their homes. So he, he tries to use devices to help with memory. And these patterns and these repetitions. He also used numerology, we'll see, to make points. Right at the first chapter, he'll often contrast two characters. So right off the bat in chapter 2, Matthew is going to contrast two kings. King of Herod, king of Jesus. The king, uh, the mad king who's a murderer of babies, who's really uh, related to the Edomites. Like I said, against Jesus, the king, the infant who will bring peace. Matthew will also uh, quote Jesus differently as well, based on audience. Jesus will use different terms based on who he's talking to. So Jesus will talk about the kingdom of heaven when he's talking to disciples. When Jesus is talking to unbelievers, he will use the kingdom of God throughout Matthew. He will switch. If you are not a believer, he will, or not one of his own, he will say kingdom of God to you. Uh, if you were in his ministry, um, as Matthew accounts it, a part of his sheep, he would say kingdom of God to you. Of a kingdom of heaven to you, that is. Or personalize. Um, also, Matthew uses a lot of irony. Matthew, for instance, lets us know that Jesus above him, as he died, um, had above him inscription that said what? The king of the Jews. And so that king of the Jews, it was a mockery for those who had put him there those who only knew the kingdom of God, but for those who understand the deep truth that Christ is the king of heaven, um, that's obviously a beautiful, beautiful use. And so he'll use these ironic moments to kind of show this dividing cut between those who know the Lord and those who do not know him. Um, and so getting into the book, the first two words of the book of Matthew are biblios genos, um, Genestos, which if we want a really, really wooden translation is the book of Genesis. Um, now we translate the book of genealogy, 
but it actually is a book of Genesis type of um, that, that happens right at the beginning. And so he's immediately possibly pointing us back to the garden in one sense with that title um, and at least pointing us back to the origins. And then, of course, he pulls out the two main names of David and Abraham and those covenants. Um, and they are very significant uh, because we have the kingly covenant in, in David and we have the nations, the promise to the nations. In Genesis chapter 21, first Abraham is given the promise of a nation in uh, 17, I want to say. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But 17 and then in 21, promise to the nations, plural. Um, so it expands. And so those are the names that are pulled out. Um, and this is very significant as the identity of Jesus is the fulfillment of the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the fulfillment from the beginning, from the Genesis. He is the fulfillment of Genesis. And Jesus is a blessing to all the nations. Also, uh, going to the numbers, there are how many generations that he has between all these figures. So he begins with Abraham. And then he has 14 generations until he gets to David. Then he has 14 generations until he gets to the Babylonian exile. And then there's 14 generations, correct? One more. And then he gets to what? Jesus. Now, we in the modern world, we have these numbers. They're separate from our letters. If you write out David in Hebrew, David adds up, what do you think, to what number? It's up here. 14. So, king, king, king. Every time this 14 sets, what Matthew is trying to say is Christ is king. Christ is king. Christ is king. The king is coming. The king is coming. These 14 generations aren't so much, uh, and people get really caught up in the differences, and we'll talk about it a little more in Luke, the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Uh, and there's a few options for that. But Matthew, who loves numbers, and we're going to get into a lot of the numbers he loves, that's not a coincidence that he mentions Abraham David, who would be seen as these authorities, 14, which adds up to David, King, 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 Jesus. And he's seen as this figure that ultimately is the fulfillment of both lines, fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, um, not that Jesus doesn't fulfill the Noahic and the Mosaic, but the New Testament here really wants to emphasize, and Matthew really wants to emphasize these two fulfillments. And then he is, he is really the one that the king that will restore them from the Babylonian exile. Of course, they have returned from the Babylonian exile, but he wants to see uh, Christ as the um, the new the deliverer for that, of the true Babylonian exile of our hearts. So that happens right up front, and then Matthew essentially, as he moves on in this book, on this first chapter. Um, 
obviously in this genealogy and pastor preached on it recently, a lot of Gentiles are mentioned, which is great scandal. Um, a lot of some women uh, with scandalous births, some um, Ruth is a Gentile, Rahab is a Gentile. Rahab, of course, um, uh, probably um, was possibly a prostitute. Um, and so uh, Bathsheba uh, is indirectly mentioned by the name Uriah. Uh, and so there is, uh, there is also just some beauty in the types of people that the genealogy of Jesus is connected to. Um, let me see here. The highlights of, so the highlight of these three events, the Abraham, Davidic, and Babylon, uh, are the big highlights that Matthew wants to see before the fulfillment of Jesus. And um, then with continuing on with that, we have the birth of Christ. And in Matthew's account, he, he doesn't focus as much on Mary. That's why I believe that Luke definitely uh, interviewed Mary on his account. But Joseph is called the first righteous man of the New Testament. And he is in uh, verse 19. And just and righteous, and when we go back to that kind of four ways to look at um, right, uh, the Bible, um, Joseph is called righteous because he wants to protect Mary from shame. He has a lot of honor in wanting to protect her from her shame. Uh, Matthew's not using that in a kind of Pauline sense there. Um, obviously, Joseph is, is established righteous. Um, he, is, he is in heaven um, when the Lord called. Uh, but uh, that is what establishes his righteousness, that he's protecting Mary from great shame. And so righteousness in that day was more often in that early church an idea of being merciful to someone who's wronged you, covering someone with uh, your honor, uh, even if uh, they had done something in shame. And so uh, uh, going back to those four themes, this is a, I think that Matthew is most likely using it with that shame idea. Um, Joseph, and notice, however, we also have Joseph, who is an interpreter of dreams, who is the first interpreter of dreams in Scripture. Joseph. And so in the New Testament, we begin with Joseph as a new um, interpreter of dreams. And through that, uh, through Joseph, uh, obviously indirectly, um, he, he makes, sees a way forward. Um, yeah. So the primary ethical teaching um, is the necessity of mercy and forgiveness in these early chapters. Um, now the Magi show up and actually I, I forgot to mention when we get from chapter 118 to 223 we have five stories that show the fulfillment of the Old Testament text so the Magi show up we know that they are called from the east they are this is linked to a Daniel prophecy they are probably uh, linked to Daniel by being Babylonian astrologers um and depending on, uh, um, Herod died in 4 BC, so um, this possibly occurred actually in 6 to 4 BC, 
this moment, uh, the, the calendar that we have today of zero being the birth of Christ is probably wrong. Um, and there's debate on the star, actually. Um, the star actually could be an angelic kind of host that led them in one sense. It doesn't necessarily have to be a star in the sky. Uh, the language kind of um, uh, leaves it open for that, that it can have that. And so so uh, Pennington actually takes the view that it was an angelic host that kind of led them through the desert to Christ. Um, and then these foreign wise men will bow down and worship the king. The Jerusalem people from Jerusalem won't come to worship him. They won't even make the trip. And this is what you're going to see with a large part of all the uh, Gospels, is that Jesus, when he's in the outer regions, when he's in places like Galilee, is he, he's going to be fairly well embraced. He's going to be able to um, have these large crowds that follow him. But as he gets closer and closer to the holy city of Jerusalem at that time, the closer he gets in geography, the more likely Jesus is to be rejected, um, to be kind of cast off by the powers that be, whether they be the Sadducees or the Pharisees. And really, the Sadducees and the Pharisees will unite together. And we think of the Sadducees, think of a liberal of their day. Think of maybe the PCUSA denomination, which is the most liberal that you could get in all of Presbyterianism. And then maybe think of uh, more conservative branches of Presbyterianism as being um, the Pharisees. And they're going to unite together jointly, kind of make this weird unity in order to cast off Jesus. So um, Matthew will do this throughout his gospel. Actually, Bethlehem is actually on a mountain. Bethlehem. So you'll... He'll kind of start the account of Jesus. Uh, uh, well, he's on a mountain. And then there's this midpoint as he flees. Then in chapter 3, he's going to be in a seashore. He's going to be seaside, calling his apostles, his disciples. Then, chapter 4, he moves away from the seaside. Then, chapter 5, Matthew's going to have him where? It begins what? The sermon... On the mount. So we don't really think about the geography as um, Bethlehem is on a hill, but Bethlehem is actually on a mountain. And so Matthew has these little subtle things throughout where he's playing with geography in his book as well, um, where he'll have sermons and such on the mount. What time am I at? Ten after. Okay. So... Um, when it comes to these prophecies, just to kind of give a quick summary, um, none of these prophecies directly look like or are fulfilled in the exact same way as the Old Testament kind of writes them. Uh, in the sense of this, when we talk about, for instance, Rachel weeping for her children, how was that first fulfilled in Scripture? It was... The Babylonian destruction. The city of Bethlehem was destroyed. The children were wiped out by the Babylonian armies. And so Jeremiah uses in that book 
this line of Rachel's weeping for her children because the city's been slaughtered at that point. Um, and so when Matthew is using fulfillment, don't think of it as sort of a, a checklist fulfillment, but he's, he's in one sense saying this theme is repeating itself again, this theme, this narrative. And yet, um, while Christ will fulfill it, it'll... All these, all five of these, of these first five fulfillments that Matthew gives us, um, are slightly different than maybe what the expectation would have led you to believe in the Old Testament, and that's okay. He's just saying, see the similarity, see the interconnectedness of this, um, and so uh, that's what he's calling. One thing I do want to do is I left a chart with the, uh, and I'll kind of conclude with this. And I'll go back to other material. I have a chart there, and if you don't have it, I'm sorry, of a classic story chart. And so why this is helpful is it will help you guys and help me and myself included. helps us kind of navigate stories. And so we're going to quickly look in and zoom in on Matthew 4. You, chapter 4. Verses 1 through 11. Um, I think 1 through 11. Yeah, 1 through 11. Now, that's Jesus being tempted uh, in the wilderness by Satan. Anybody with their Bible open, what has just happened in chapter 3? What, what's that? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, the baptism of Jesus. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son, right? This is my beloved son. It's my son. And so now he's going to get sent off into the wilderness. All right. And the same method of storytelling that we use today of, of setting, rising action, a climax, resolution, falling action, conclusion, is found in the text. Um, and so if we were to look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11, what would be, what verse might be the setting? What verse establishes the setting? And Pat, Matthew uses, why I'm going to tell, teach you this is Matthew uses this pattern all throughout and of the other gospel writers through his scripture, and it can kind of help you through it. What? Yeah, chapter 1. He's in the wilderness. So verse 1 is the setting. Setting, verse 1. And then where is... Let's see, where's the climax of the story? What verse or two verses might you see as the climax of the story? See, the holy city, or I'll just read it, but um, I'll go. So the climax of the story, anybody have another? We have a, somebody thinks five, six. Any other submissions? 10 as a submission. Pattern of three is always worth looking at. So the third time he's tempted, or what two verses? Eight through nine, correct? Eight through nine. So what you'll have then is this story, two through, verses two through seven becomes a rising action. Verses 8 through 9, the climax. 10 
um, is the resolution. And then after that, we have uh, the following action, or, or basically, Matthew makes clear the story is ended. And he does this, the devil leaves. So, so that's um, inclusion. And Matthew will do all these little micro stories throughout, um, throughout the Bible. And actually, when you start looking at them, you'll, you'll see how this section will connect not only to this. So, we began the book with Genesis. Um, who did John Baptist call a brood of vipers in chapter 2? The Pharisees and the, uh, the Sadducees also, I guess it was just the Pharisees. Brood of vipers, snake imagery. Oh, oops, I don't think I'm spelling brood right. Um, so in chapter 2, we have snake imagery. This is my son. Then the true serpent comes, a Satan. And he comes, and he comes to tempt Christ. And he offers Christ at this dramatic point of conflict. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'm offering you all the kingdoms. And then when Christ shifts out of this story, what is he going to start talking about? The kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. So when he shifts out of this temptation of the wilderness, where he was offered all the world's kingdoms by the serpent, and this new kind of Genesis, and I, I think definitely um, through chapter 2, when we have the two kings, the two kings of the world in one sense, Herod is in one sense a typology of evil, uh, versus Jesus, the king of peace. We have brood of vipers. Then we have the actual serpent offering the king of the world, kingship of the world. And then we have Christ at the conclusion of it all in these early moments preach on the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to talk about how um, this is greater than all, all of what Satan can offer, all of what these brood of vipers are concerned about. And... Um, and so this way of kind of looking through stories, and you can kind of see Matthew is telling component stories that he has kind of added into the Scripture, and, and there are often links between the one previous and the one post. And uh, this is one of those little moments uh, that, that has happened. So, um, and, if, and we'll, we'll go into maybe a few more of these. We'll talk more of these through the study. But, um, yeah, that final temptation of offering the kingdoms to Christ is, uh, is unique. Uh, one thing I did pass, skip over, but in the baptism of Jesus, we see in that Matthew's account the what? Dan Jensen taught an awesome class on it, the Trinity. Um, if people sometimes argue that the Trinity is you know, made up a later construction, and yet Matthew in that, we see the Spirit descending like a dove. Christ is there. This is my beloved Son with whom I am all pleased. We have the fullness of the Trinity in that moment. 
And there's no contradiction with the fact that the Shema Israel for the Jew, the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. It's still the, the focal teaching of, of the Old Testament. That was what you would say as a Jew before you died. The idea would be to say, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Um, and yet we see the Trinity here also in Matthew. So um, I know a, a lot of material and um, it'll be more of just going through the text in general the following three weeks. But thank you for uh, being here today. Any questions? Any comments? Thoughts? Thank you, Jim, in the Old Testament. Yeah, no, and I, I'm the same way. Romans was the book the Lord used for me. But my point in that is in one sense, Paul is commentary on the events of the Gospels. And so... Um, Sometimes we flipped it in the Reformed community where it's sort of like study, study, study Paul, but we forget to appreciate the beauty of the Gospels, which Paul is working out the theology through the power of the Spirit of the implications of this Christ coming event, of this new Genesis that has occurred, this new Genesis moment where we have this new King, the King of Peace has finally come to free us from the powers of the world, whether they be Herod, whether they be Satan himself, whether they be authorities like the uh, brood of vipers, the Pharisees, that this new king of peace is cut into history. And so Paul's writing, I just categorically, it, it's more of the complement to the main dish of the Gospels. Yeah, he, he explains it. It's Yeah, now obviously I'm not questioning the, the Holy Spirit giving us uh, Paul's 14 books. pastor would say 13 because we disagree on the book of Hebrews. So, yeah, but, but he's gone now. So, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah. Any, any other uh, questions, comments? Okay. So I know a lot of kind of material, scattered material. I've had a busy month, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I promise we'll, We'll stick mainly to the text next time and just kind of march through. But um, this habit of storytelling can really be effective. And I'll, I'll use it a few more times where we'll go through like this. Because sometimes we'll read stories and we'll go, what's the point there? Like, what's the main point? And actually, kind of breaking down this old relic from our English class uh, that we might have had in high school can be helpful to understanding the main point of the text where... It's Jesus being offered the kingship of the world, and he's going to reject that. Even though in his full power, he had every right to do it. Obviously not through Satan, but he submits to the authority of the Father. It's, it's really a fulfillment of Hebrews chapter 5 there. Um, that Paul will work out in that chapter of the Bible. But um, he has every right to immediately come, but he's going to wait to be king of heaven. All right, let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the blessing of being able to begin to look at the Gospels. Um, I ask that you just bless our worship of you this Lord's Day in, um, in the sanctuary. And I thank you that 
you have given to us the testimony of your disciples. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.